0: Welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. My name is Mackenzie Britton. I am the producer for the podcast and your temporary host while Pastor Joe is on vacation. This past week at Bothell
1: Amplified, we welcome Dr. Jennifer McFarlane Harris, Associate Professor at the Seattle Pacific University. Reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, Dr. Harris discusses how we are all called to grow the family
0: of God. Check it out now on Bothel Amplified.
1: Good morning. Uh, my name is Jim O'Farrell. This morning's scripture will be read from the King James Version as that is what 19th century American readers would have been familiar with. Our speaker, who you meet later, will be referencing black women authors from that time period who used the King James Version in their own autobiographies and spiritual practice. Today's readings from Romans chapters 5 1 through 8, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commandeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Holy words for God's people.
0: I'm going to actually begin with a bit of my own personal journey with Christianity, and how I came to want to study conversion narratives in the first place. When I started my sophomore year of college, I registered for a course called Women, Sexuality, and Western Religions. As I slid into one of the student chair desks on the first day, I felt uneasy. I felt like I was going out on a limb because I was pretty sure I was done with Christianity as an organized religion having been thoroughly indoctrinated through many years of parochial school, only one year of public school, eighth grade, that was it. Good time, by the way, to go to public school because it's one of the scariest times, right? That sort of middle school, junior high moment. So yeah, absolutely. So I got all my public school in in that one year, but other than that, right, mostly mostly parochial school. So I was pretty sure I did not wanna go to a Christian university, um, even though that was my parents' fervent wish. At the time, I thought, Why would I want to look through a Christian lens again for any more of my education, given that so many Christians seem to discount the importance of women in the founding of the faith? At the tomb, first to see the proof of the resurrection? That's right, amen. In the development of its theology? Didn't St. Augustine hate women? And in the ongoing teaching and preaching of the church? After Galatians 3.28, why are we even debating women being called to ministry? So I chose a small, private, once upon a time Baptist but now secular liberal arts university in Southern California and I found myself sitting in front of an amazing professor of gender and religion. She introduced herself to the class in a glorious southern accent which I will not do because I'm not from the south. She said I'm from Georgia and I grew up southern Baptist but now I'm an atheist and I'm still endlessly fascinated by religion and I found myself wondering who are you? But also, am I allowed to have questions and still love religion? I wasn't sure how to hold Christian devotion in tension with any of my questions. Without that professor's teaching, I may never have found my way back to Christianity. It's not that the lessons were lost on me when I took church history at my Christian high school. I truly believed in the coming kingdom of God and the core tenets of my Anabaptist upbringing, at least the version from my Swiss German Mennonite mother, and my Jamaican raised Plymouth brethren and father. I believed in things like nonviolence as an active counterweight to injustice. I believed in adult baptism. But because I had such doubts about the exclusionary nature of Christianity for women, I didn't feel like any of my other beliefs mattered if the patriarchal framework itself was going to be inevitable and oppressing. But reading about Sophia wisdom in Proverbs 8 as a crucial component to the idea of God the Father learning that 19th century feminists wrote an entire biblical commentary to contend with what they called false superstitions about women in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So here we're talking about the women's Bible, right? And I will not do this lecture because that's not what I'm doing today, but the women's Bible, Elizabeth Cady Stanton et al., one of the cool things they do is talk about the difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and they say, and I quote, it is evident that some wily writer seeing the perfect equality of man and woman in the first chapter felt it important for the dignity and dominion of man to affect women's subordination in some way. So they take that story of Adam and Eve, the idea of woman and Eve as temptress, as the origin of original sin, and they just dismantle it, right? When I realized that Jesus' mother Mary was not just a vessel, but had her own deep sense of divine conviction about her pregnancy, when I heard Jewish scholars talk about the idea of Midrash, interpreting holy texts in time, in context, and in community, All that made me realize I could give Christianity another try. If the feminist scholars and seekers I encountered in class could find their place, maybe I could find a place in the church for myself. Rather than a static seat of misogyny, I came to see Christianity as inspiration. Breathing. A dynamic infusion of life made possible by the Holy Spirit, refreshing each one of us and moving like a current through our communities To bring justice and peace to the world. So one of my favorite stories in the Bible is a kind of origin story of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. We just learned about this like a month ago, not even, so you don't even need me to go over everything, but this moment of theophany, right, that fancy word for God shows up, God shows up in visible manifestation through these tongues of fire that alight on each apostle and disciple, that's described as that kind of inspiration, right, that amazing tongues of fire appearing on every one of them, and of course, then they're speaking in tongues, right? These multiple languages. Of course, the story of Pentecost is also provocative because it is this radically inclusive moment where Peter says to all those who might be skeptical about these people going around speaking in languages they'd never spoken before, that this is a moment like the one foretold. Quote, In the last days, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. This hearkening back to Joel 2 is a crucial moment for the church and it's a text that many women in the 19th century also pointed to when they felt themselves being called by the Holy Spirit to preaching careers. Not just to exhort others. Exhorting is to give one's voice to one's own conversion or to essentially call someone else into faith, call for repentance, those kinds of things. But to preach, to preach is to teach to interpret scripture, to guide and instruct others in the faith. Preaching is that aspect that women have historically been denied and are still being denied, as with the recent vote of the Southern Baptist Convention, to uphold the expulsion of two churches for having women pastors. Many of the women who wrote spiritual autobiographies in the 19th century described facing resistance from their husbands, their brothers, male ministers, which is like saying the word male twice, <laughs> denominations, and even themselves when first hearing God's call. Yet the Holy Spirit would not leave them alone. They were inspired to inspire others. Many black women called to itinerant ministry in the 19th century, preached a version of grace that breaks down barriers of race and gender and class, inviting would-be believers to become part of the family of God. One such woman, Julia A.J. Foote, was born in Schenectady, New York in 1823, and grew up in a region that had experienced so many religious revivals, Western New York, that it was often referred to as the burned over district. As historian Whitney Cross reminds us, forest fires become analogous to spiritual ones, which can leave paths of destruction in their wake when the flames lick up everything that's combustible. But the metaphor also suggests that this burning over process is a luxuriant, new growth. It's not just destruction, it's that possibility. In effect, spiritual burning can be a cleansing, renewing fire. Julia Foote saw herself following in the footsteps of the legendary John Wesley himself by referring to herself as a spiritual firebrand. She titled her 1879 spiritual autobiography A Brand Plucked from the Fire. As a young boy in 1709, Wesley narrowly escaped death in a fire that burned his family's house to the ground, a crucial event in Methodist folklore. He was apparently destined to offer others salvation from even fiercer flames. That's Roy Hattersley explaining in his 2002 biography of Wesley. In a similar way, Foote fed the fires of revival through her itinerant preaching career, ultimately becoming an ordained deacon of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in 1894 and an elder in 1900. I'm inspired by Foote's evangelicalism, that is, driven to reach others through the life of Jesus, working first outside formal structures of Methodism when her role as a woman preacher and interpreter of scripture was initially questioned by her husband who threatened to quote send her back to the crazy house or home and you wonder if those are the same thing and by an all-male clergy who opposed both her popularity and her convictions about sanctification which is also known as Christian perfection again that's a separate lecture (laughs) only later did she become part of that leadership in the AME Zion church So she works outside the system, and then she works within the system, which has the potential to actually upend the system itself. A good deal of my scholarship focuses on women like Foote, who use their autobiographical writings to explore complex theologies of grace in the larger Wesleyan tradition. We have a rich history in Methodism, of marveling at the mystery and power of God's love, that, as the King James Version of Romans 5 says, while we were yet without strength, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are justified by faith itself, and we have hope, quote, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. God gave us God's Son and the Holy Spirit as a continual witness to that love, the ineffable beauty of grace that existed before you or I ever came to be, and even before Christ was crucified. I have to give a shout out to Pastor Joe. Methodism 101, small group, Provenient Grace, you want to know more? Pastor Joe, okay. In American history, many women and people of color were attracted to Methodism because of this radical grace, which provided a potentially hierarchy upending message. After all, if the Holy Spirit called you to teach and preach, even if you were a woman or a person of color or both, with no formal theological training, then who were you to say no to the spirit that is really quite a thing to hear the amen right it's that collectivity this is precise we're going to get to camp meetings in a second and i'm just expe- yeah th- exactly i'm expecting all of that enthusiasm to come back around okay i'm going to speak with you today about one of these inspiring figures or another one we've just talked about Foot. we're going to talk about zilpha elah also known as zilpha elah shum who was a freeborn African-American itinerant minister who lived from about 1790 to 1873. She was Methodist, but evangelized independently of any denomination, preaching all over the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic and Southern states, right? So through multiple states that would still have been very much engaged in chattel slavery, eventually going on to a five-year mission to England. If you want the full-on academic version of my take on e-law, you can read my article in the journal Performance, Religion, and Spirituality, or you can check out Dr. Kimberly Blockett's new scholarly edition of the Memoirs of the Life, Religious Experience, Ministerial Travels and Labors of Mrs. Zilpha Elaw. and actually the title goes on because it's a 19th century title, so there's more. (laughs) But for our purposes today, I'm talking about how Elah asserts in her memoirs that we become part of the family of God through the spirit of adoption in community. Following the Apostle Paul's construction, Elah used the idea of the spirit of adoption to interpret her own life experiences and connect her readers to Christ. She takes pains to note that those who are justified in Christ become adopted children of God through the Holy Spirit, as in Romans 8 that we already heard today. And then she puts that believer back into community by stressing that those who are baptized in Christ become members of one body, the church, through the Holy Spirit. But before giving these more sophisticated theological constructs, Ela notes in her memoirs that she did not have an earthly parent to guide her during her crucial teenage years. She was born to free parents who had a total of 22 children, but only Elaw and two others survived infancy. Yeah. Elah's adolescence was challenging because her mother died in childbirth when she was 12, and then her father placed her as a servant in a white Quaker household before he also died a couple of years later. Now without parents, Elaw had to stay in that Quaker household as a domestic until she was 18. In her autobiographical writings, Elaw contrasts what family devotions had been like in her parents' home, lively, daily spiritual practice, with Quaker devotions, which she describes as being, quote, performed in the secret silence of the mind. So she was obviously less than comfortable with Quaker devotions. She was not converted in that way. Instead, she had a vision of Jesus coming toward her while she was doing a daily thing. She was in a cow stall. She was doing the daily chore of milking and singing singing a hymn to herself. It was, of course, oh, when shall I see Jesus? And then theophany. Jesus shows up, a manifestation of the divine. Elah describes Jesus appearing before her, smiling as if to say, I own thy name. She also notes that the cow turned its head <laughs> and saw the figure too, which made her feel like, okay, yeah, this is a, ver- a vision that's actually in reality and not just in my mind, right? In autobiography studies, scholars might look at a moment like this and note that the 50-something Ewa is narrating her story of conversion, showing her spiritual growth demonstrating that she is a reliable interpreter of her own experiences and her own supernatural experiences. Without an earthly parent to help her and with a Quaker employer who did not believe in dreams and visions, Elah becomes the interpreter. But as Christians, we might also look to this moment through Elah's spiritual maturity and note that we also need to be ready for God to show up where we might not expect God to be, in small moments and even simple tasks even when we don't have the familial support that we might want. In Elah's story, in the absence of her own parents, her other place of solace and instruction became that steadfast institution, one of the most important traditions within Methodism, the class meeting. Yeah, that's, that's an amen, in case you were wondering. You know about these, right? Okay, if you've participated in small groups here at Bothell, you have some idea of what the class meeting is supposed to be. Scripture, reading, prayer, fellowship. As an institution, the class meeting was quite an innovation by John Wesley. A method, remember that, of course, Methodism was first derisive, as a term. It's a method of education and learning together, weekly, with a small group of believers. Personal interaction, accountability, intimate fellowship, like a revival in miniature over time. As a young believer, Ela found community strengthened her resolve and her faith. Joining a Methodist class meeting in her area was something that was absolutely fundamental to her, kind of like self-education and her education in community. But there was one problem with this class meeting. It was two miles away, on foot, at night, past two graveyards, to get there. But after that meeting of Jesus and her in the cow stall, Ela found her superstitions and fear of the dark just fade away. Trips to and from the class meeting became this important moment of communion with the divine. I'm going to quote from her memoirs. I enjoyed richly the spirit of adoption, knowing myself to be an adopted child of divine love. I claimed God as my father and his son Jesus as my dear friend, who adhered to me more faithfully in goodness than a brother. And with my blessed savior, redeemer, intercessor, and patron, I enjoyed a delightsome heavenly communion, such as the world has never conceived of. As she grew in faith, the Holy Spirit became her instructor and guide, and she emphasized her place as a child in the family of God. As you know from the scripture reading this morning, the verses from Romans 8 read, Ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The words, Abba, Father, are important because they were spoken by Jesus in the overwhelming intensity of the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before his execution. Tried, tempted, afraid, Jesus prayed fervently to our heavenly parent, and Elah explains that she did the same. In her memoirs, the spirit of adoption becomes a theological trope across her entire text, from her conversion in the cow stall to the seal of baptism, which of course allowed her to participate in the ritual communion, which as we know here is like such an important moment of community making, Ela found a spiritual family after losing her earthly one. For the sake of time I'm going to skip a lot. I'm going to skip over a number of interesting incidents from her memoirs, I hope you read them, including her 13-year marriage to a man who was a Christian in name only, and derided Elah's faith and disbelieved her call to a preaching career. He then passed away. Elah is a little bit kind of like flat in the moment when she describes that moment of his passing. It's Hard, as a reader, it's hard to kind of interpret that moment. I'm also skipping over her sanctification and her commission, which both took place in that liminal space, that in-between space from the second great awakening called the camp meeting. I told you we were coming to it. Okay, we're here. The second great awakening refers to the Protestant religious revivals that crisscrossed the young United States from the 1790s to about 1840. Besides increases in church membership, huge increases, one of the hallmarks of this time of revival was the camp meeting. Camp meetings were days or weeks long events where hundreds or even thousands of people would come from miles around to set up their tents in rural areas, creating a large central space to hear preaching, participate in worship, Imagine preaching and testifying in multiple spaces and pulpits. People at the mourner's bench, people are praying in groups, they're hymn singing, there's ecstatic shouting, people being slain in the spirit, right? And all these things kind of happen simultaneously across multiple days. Efforts were often made to segregate white and black attendees into designated areas, but services often merged. As literary historians and theologians like Yolanda Pierce assert, these temporary breakdowns of boundaries across lines of race, class, gender, and age, and church hierarchy were particularly significant for black believers gaining access to a larger Christian community in oral culture. The gospel story would come alive in these moments, the Holy Spirit moving from person to person. If it sounds like another Pentecost or a vision of inclusive Christianity at the end of the world, it should. At one such camp meeting in Oyster Bay, New York, around 1830, Zilpha Elah found herself preaching in the midst of hundreds, and saw that her own biological daughter was responding to the altar call. Her daughter was feeling the weight of her sins and crying aloud to God for mercy. The crowd was apparently electrified when they learned that the young woman before them, being slain in the spirit, was Elah's only child. Elah explains, many a mother strongly felt with me on that occasion, And though my position would not allow me to leave the pulpit to go and pour the oil of consolation into her wounded spirit, yet, thank God, there were abundance of dear friends present who were ready for every good word and work. I love this moment. Ela seems to feel that her leadership role has to continue from the pulpit. So she trusts the community to be Christ to her daughter, to facilitate her daughter's conversion. Ela reminds her readers that none but god can do the work of conversion but god via the holy spirit often acts in community in her memoirs elah closes the scene of her closes the scene of her daughter's conversion using two of her favorite verses from the apostle paul saying the spirit of adoption was imparted to her daughter her daughter rejoiced in the lord with all her soul and his love was shed abroad in her heart by the Holy Ghost. You will recognize phrases from our two scriptures for today, both Romans 5 and 8 in that, in Elah's summary. Like John Wesley also does in a sermon called The Spirit of Bondage and of Adoption, Elah highlights the Holy Spirit's validation of Christians as God's own children. The child of Elah's body becomes a part of the body of Christ. And Elah's text testifies to this inspiration. This breath of the Holy Spirit that invites us to be part of the family of God. And the Holy Spirit moves. Whether in the personal revival of the class meeting or the public ministry of the camp meeting, whether, as I experienced it, in the classroom or in our small groups or our large congregational spaces, in personal identity or social activism, public history or service to the community, we are Christ in the community as the Holy Spirit makes us family. Today I hope you will reflect on the witness of your family, your chosen family, the family that comes for you and shows up for you and loves you, blesses you. The family of God is inclusive, radical and world altering, as small as the tongue of flame within you, as large as the burned over revivals of the past. And as we celebrate Pride this month and Juneteenth tomorrow, May we be inspired by the voices of those who have gone before us, whether in suffering or in celebration. Let the struggle be our inheritance and the joy, even as we are joint heirs with Christ. Amen.